0: You have tuned in to Paracel's podcast series, Decentrally Speaking, where we explore opportunities to operationalize decentralized clinical trials across our industry.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast, talking about sites and trial diversity. My name is Ros Round, Vice President of the Patient Innovation Center here at Parexel, and here with me today is Carlos from Alcanza Clinical. So today, we'll be really thinking about some operational experiences and best practices in optimizing inclusivity for patients from underrepresented communities, thinking about how we can help, but also thinking in advance, how can this hurt to make sure that we're really being clear in the plans that we're putting together? Carlos, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Oh, sure. Certainly. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Carlos Orantes. I'm the CEO for Alcanza Clinical Research, and I'm very happy to be here.
1: And we are delighted to have you. Thank you very much. So let's dive right in. From your perspective and the experiences that you've had, how does staffing diversely at all levels allow you to have multiple views on the different underrepresented patient populations?
0: Well, staffing is something that traditionally individual companies look at what is present only at the sites. But one of the things that we've done at Alcanza is take a much broader view and think about how can we impact inclusive research to take place. And that has to drive us to staff it even outside of the site with that in mind. And so we actually started with hiring a chief of patient experience so that we could be focused on this exact thing at all angles at every single touch point with the study participants, not just at the site, but even before the site experience occurs.
1: Brilliant. I think we've done something similar here at Power Excel. Actually, we've got a chief patient officer as well as the patient innovation centre, and we've got a diversity, equity, and inclusion team. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely important. As you think, um, as you say, to think about it from multiple angles. We certainly focus on patients, but also thinking about the um, the partners, the vendors that we work with, and also our people within the organisation too. So, yeah, a multi view on things I think is really important. So when we think about the process itself, I guess thinking from the very beginning when we first start planning, protocol review is something that you and I have talked about before that's really important. Really thinking how study design can help or hinder reaching underrepresented populations. So what are some of the things that you've seen to be really important?
0: Well, I think the traditional review of a protocol is again focused almost entirely on the experience of the participant at the site. And what we actually have to do is think about How do we reach the participants as part of the protocol? Use of devices as well, those implications, not just what they're used to, what they are able to use in their environment, but also from a cultural standpoint, I think is one of the biggest barriers that every culture of participants has their own tendencies or idiosyncrasies that we need to be mindful of to prepare in every step of the interaction process, not just when we reached out to them for potential participation, When we reach out to them for a visit, when they actually come to the physical sites for their visit, we have to be prepared so that we can not only be accommodating, because to them that's normal. And if they don't find a normal in any one of those touch points, we could risk losing them and not having them be included. So those are some of the things that for me, for our organization, is very important to have view even much broader than just the physical site.
1: Absolutely. And I know that we've talked before about how there's often secrecy around ill health in some communities, for example. And so we need to be really careful about how we approach patients and think about some of those things. You talked about Ramadan last time we spoke and and the impact. Could you highlight a bit about that?
0: Yes. And so, again, that goes back to culture, religion. So, for example, during Ramadan, there are certain things that people can do during the day, during the evening, and so we have to think about not just when activities take place. Does it line up with the individual's activity? Also, what about their ability to consume food during the day versus evening? And so we need to be mindful that if, if they're doing most of their food consumption, uh, sun down to sun up, then doing research, the opposite time frame, for example, would be problematic for them. I think the other concept too is, when you talk about inclusion-exclusion criteria, there are just some elements uh, such as BMI, for example. If you set a threshold that is intended for the general public, you might be excluding some populations just by the fact that you're making some parameters be exclusionary. And it's not on purpose, but it happens.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's something we've been looking at here at PowerXL about how we can really take a close look at protocols in general, kind of take a cross-section of protocols and look at maybe some of those historical elements in a trial that maybe people haven't thought about before that might include certain patient groups um, and really think about if they are there because they are scientifically important or because that's just how things have always been done. And maybe uncovering some of those things, as you mentioned, BMI, so that we can provide guidance to sponsors on how to really optimize the inclusion of underrepresented communities so that we're not inadvertently exclude them just because of the way that that things are being written at the moment. So outreach is important as well, isn't it? Thinking about where we go to speak to patients and who we work with in the community.
0: There is no question that outreach is one of the most challenging aspects. That's really the upfront interaction that you have. So sort of the first moment of truth. And traditional methods of just going out with general advertising reaches, again, the general public. But when you're reaching the underrepresented patient populations, you can't just do that. You have to actually start with the outreach, doing the legwork to gain trust of those communities, perhaps with a trusted partner. And and that way they can then help disseminate the prospect of a study, the benefits of participation on a study, And if you don't have those intermittent steps to gain that trust, for example, of that community first, most of that outreach that you do in the general advertising just either goes ignored or it's certainly not as effective because of that trust factor not being there. So I think that's one of the biggest changes when you're going to do outreach or advertising, you have to think about that's a step two, but step one is that fundamental approach to establishing that connection with that community.
1: And can you give us some examples of some of those trusted partners or community champions where do you find them and how do you build those relationships
0: so in some cases for example going to a gathering like a church and that's naturally where people are drawn to so if you find that trusted partner within that church organization as long as they are understanding of what research can be and truly is, right, versus what it's not. If we can convince them and get them comfortable, then they can open the door to introduce us to the rest of the community. Another example would be a local physician where the general population knows them because they've been taking care of kids, parents, multi-generations. So is that trusted partner that everybody will look to immediately for concurrence? Is this okay for me to consider as an option? those would be two of the most beneficial approaches that we've used in the past
1: brilliant thanks carlos what about on site when we think about when the patient actually arrives at site what are some of the things that you've put in place to ensure that people feel welcomed and that it's a place for them
0: well certainly understanding who's coming and making sure that we manage the expectations first and foremost is what is going to happen when you're coming on site You can't assume that everybody knows that it's like a doctor's office. They may or may not have been in a traditional doctor's office setting. So you have to manage their expectations by letting them know what can they expect, what's going to be the experience and making sure that when they come on site, that they're greeted and that we anticipate what are some of their requirements. And the best way to anticipate is asking them, for example, are you going to come alone? or are you going to bring any family members with you or even a community member? Those are things that are not traditional in other patient populations, but if somebody shows up with a loved one that's a family member or just a community member, if you don't allow them to participate in the process, that immediately can be a deal breaker and you lose that potential participant forever. And then they can go back to their community and, and also not be an advocate for us. So I think that managing of expectations, not only of the potential participant, but also of our staff so that they can be sensitive to understanding what is it that we need to deliver as part of the patient experience when they're on site.
1: And I know that's something that we've heard in the work we've done in our discussions on diversity series. You know, In some communities, it's a group decision-making process and the whole family might come along. In others, as we mentioned before, there might be a degree of secrecy. In others, it may not be the patient themselves who's the main decision-maker. So have you undertaken cultural competency training at site or is it something that's evolved over time so that your staff can understand some of these nuances?
0: It's something that's evolved over time, but we're actually right now rolling out an approach that we can have a consistent sensitivity training. And it's actually a good process to do, not just for engaging patients, but also engaging colleagues, engaging vendors. But specifically, I think there's so many nuances that you deal with in so many cultures that there's no better way to do it than to have it be somewhat standardized training that we can expose our staff uh, as soon as they join the organization but also part of continuous education because things do evolve generation to generation. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. And what about when the patient's in the trial, when we think about how to kind of keep in touch with patients or how to support them during their participation, what have you found to be most beneficial there? And are there any variations by age or literacy level or community that they come from, for example?
0: I think several things apply from Just traditional patient populations to underrepresented, such as do you have a preference for communicating via email, via phone, via text, right? The same thing with perhaps different preferences. But I think what has to happen too is it's not just a medium, but it's also what's the comfort level that some of these participants have. Sometimes they want to speak to a single individual that they develop that partnership with. And typically it's the clinical research coordinator. They would love to speak to the physician all the time, but we know that's not practical. So we wanna make sure that we understand what is their preference. So that way when they're being consulted during the trial, do they have any questions? Are they following up on their diary and and so on and so forth. If their preference is to have that single point of contact, we try to accommodate it and it's, it's not always, easy to do so, but that's something that at least managing their expectations up front as part of the process. Once they're on site, this is how we're going to be communicating with you when you're off site in between your visits. And, And so just giving them that comfort level, it really goes a long way.
1: Something we've heard a lot from the patients that we partner with too is the importance of things like the patient concierge, so supporting with travel and any accommodation if it's needed. We actually offer through our patient navigator service, a counselling service as well for the patient and the caregiver. Have you seen those kinds of things as important at your site?
0: Yes, uh, I think transportation continues to be, it's not new as an issue or a barrier, but it continues to be one, especially at least at first, when they're coming to the site for the first time. But also sometimes that even later, even though they're used to coming to that site, is having the incentive is somebody's going to pick me up as opposed to just having another challenge of how do you get there? We like to ask, how do you come to our site? What does it take? Because if they have to go walk a mile to get on the bus and then get on a train for example or go somewhere else to get even an uber or a Lyft ride sometimes they don't get picked up at their location they have to go somewhere else to be picked up there so my recommendation always is ask your participants what does it take for you to get here so you don't assume and that that is the biggest danger is just assuming
1: that is a great point and a great idea of communicating with patients in that way so I think the main things that we've talked about today, really, the importance of kind of getting the protocol and the study design ready and correct and being inclusive from the beginning and thinking about some of those nuances and planning them into the process. Then thinking about how we let patients know about the research and really ideally from people that they trust within the community. And then thinking about the ways on site that you can make people feel comfortable and welcomed and support them with some of the practical elements. Is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you'd like to share in addition to that?
0: I think the the one thing I would recommend is throughout the whole process is ask yourself as well as the participants, both sides of the coin. How can this help? How can this hurt? How could this be a facilitation for you to participate? How could this be a detractor for you to participate? Asking those two questions throughout the process for everything you've just mentioned, Roz, is very important because it can be very enlightening to find out some key things that are fairly simple to overcome if you do them in advance. But if you overlook them and you don't take care of them, they could be a detriment for participation.
1: Absolutely. Totally agree. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. You've been wonderful. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Raz. To our listeners, if you're interested in learning more, visit parexcel.com or alcantaclinical.com. You can also follow Parexcel on social media to learn more insights from our experts. And finally, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us
0: today. Please tune in next time as our Decentrally Speaking series continues to engage with other subject matter experts and thought leaders on expanding clinical access for patients
1: through the use of decentralized trials.